welcome to another episode of the Pedestrian Podcast. Joining myself, Stuart Court, is as ever Mr. Adam Nathan. How are we, sir? I'm not so bad. The one week we don't podcast, Spurs come off a 6-1 winner at Old Trafford. <laughs> of course, uh, I don't get a chance to enjoy any of it in public, so I'm going to do it now. But hey, what can you do? What can you do? 13 goals in five days, right? Top team. The dinosaur Mourinho. We're, up, we're on the march. <laughs> and joining us uh, uh, for like probably the 50th time of the 120 odd episodes, Mr. Rob Staten. How are we, sir? Oh, great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that Manchester United Tottenham game. And uh-huh. I must admit, there was a point, you know, that I was thinking of you, Adam, and thinking how much you were enjoying it as well. And then, um, and then I think the Seahawks playing the Dolphins that day, and that was and what I called focus. Was it the Dolphins? We remember a different game. I was focused on the NFL, and then came back to the Villa Liverpool game when it was about eighty minutes in, and saw it was like seven <laughs> two. I was like, "What? No!" So just <laughs> unbelievable day of football there. Yeah. So we, we we live in London, and uh, we had a bit of a family trip to Padstow. Uh, me, mum and dad are all big Spurs fans my wife and my sister were there as well we were wondering about if a five hour commute for every single game is a bit excessive to just go and watch the game down there because obviously good luck as opposed to staying in London but I think it's a bit excessive but hey, it, it'll be worth it Yeah, There was a picture you posted on where you could always see the 13 goal glee coming off you and your dad <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, we were absolutely glowing what a, what a week for the lads, it was great <laughs> so, uh, the Seahawks did beat the Dolphins and we didn't pod about it because to be honest there was not much of note really was there Adam from the Dolphins game if you can remember no, it was kind of just one of those Seahawks games that you, you, you want to enjoy all of it but you never really get to enjoy any of it because there's always something that feels like it's lurking and you were messaging me we were out for dinner a little bit and I saw a bit of it and not as much as I'd like and you were saying oh shit they've scored but oh wait we've scored it was one of those um it was a bit. It was become a bit of a, t- a ten AM classic Seahawk game, I think. But um, they got through it, and four and zero was all you could ask for at the time. And now, yeah, a week later, here we are at five and zero for the first time in franchise history. Yeah, five and zero after beating the Vikings on Sunday night football in the end zone, which every Seahawk game seems to finish in a minute. Rob, but how the hell did that happen? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's a, it was a strange game, wasn't it? Because um, apart from sort of one minute and 48, 49 seconds at the start of the second half and the final drive, that was a, an absolute arse-kicking of the highest order. I mean, Minnesota just dominated both sides of the ball, you know, dominating the trenches. Mike Zimmer in the first half was confusing Russell Wilson and giving him all sorts of looks. You know, they'd start off in a deep, too deep safety cover two type thing and then mix it up and Wilson's kind of stuck there and he's, he's overthinking it and he's taking sacks. I mean, I, I think they had something like 13 yards until like a bit of garbage time at the end of the half, um, you know, to pad that a little bit. And, and you're thinking, what's going on here? And then, you know, that crazy start to the second half turns everything around, but then Minnesota just reasserted their control. And, you know, it, the Vikings were, if, if Alexander Mattison makes that cut on fourth down and fourth and in, inches to, to win the game, he probably scores. If he cuts to the right-hand side, there's a huge gap there. He scores and it ends up being a, a very handsome 30-odd point to whatever it would have been, uh, 21 uh, victory for the Vikings. And we're having a very different conversation this week. We're talking about the Seahawks of four and one. You know, nearly blew it against the Patriots, nearly blew it against the Cowboys, hammered at home against Minnesota. And I, and I think the whole dynamic is different. And it just goes to show that it really is a game of inches, isn't it? That the Seahawks yeah. make that stop, then have a, you know, a 94-yard drive in the rain and it's 5-0. and And the whole complexion of the season going into this bye week feels a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, because I think that fourth down stop of Madison Adam was the only time the Vikings didn't get 
plus yardage all night. Well, I mean, the big discussion point since the game has been, you know, and it's been framed as kind of an analytics versus old school football type thing of should they have gone for it and should they have taken the field goal? I would be, you, you've got to be a serious homer on it from a seal level to think that they weren't going to get a yard on that play, having watched all the evidence from the previous, you know, the previous moments. You know, I guess you could say the same about the Patriots game. And if there's one thing you can say about this defense is that it's come big, maybe bigger than it's ever done in the biggest moments. Um, how sustainable that is going forward, I don't know. And that's something we can probably go on to at some point. But, you know, three enormous plays in the last three home games, they've come up bigger than they have done at any point in the other games. So um, I wasn't expecting the, the way in which that happened. Um, I guess you could argue that, you know, take the field goal and don't give Russell Wilson a chance to win the game before, you know, b- b- before the clock hits four zeros, which may not have been the worst shot. But, did, you know, did anyone here honestly think we were going to stop them from getting half a yard? No. I mean, Rob's shaking his head furiously. No. I mean, listen, I think the whole, the whole thing on that, I don't think there's a wrong answer. Because mm-hmm. if, if, if he kicks it and, and it's eight points and you're saying, okay, 75 yards, then you need to score and you need to get the two-point conversion to win. Perfectly understandable if he'd gone for that. But as you say, I mean, I just assumed, I mean, I'd already written my article for the end of the game by that point. <laughs> you know, you know I, and, and there was a quick rewrite after the, the game had actually finished, uh, which I was very happy to do. But it, it just seemed inevitable they were going to get whatever it was, six inches to, to win that game. They, they were falling forward every single time. If he makes the cut, he gets it easily. But fair play, you know, Cody Barton has had a really rough time in Seattle and he comes crashing in and takes out the fullback. Bobby Wagner mops it up and they get the stop. And it, it just gives Russell Wilson that chance. And the Seahawks, if you give Russell Wilson a chance to win a game, more often than not, he'll take it. Yeah, I mean, Leno Hill, Cody Barton and Ryan Neal, that's just the three players we all expected to step up in the big moments, wasn't it, Rob? Yeah, I find it a very strange season to analyse so far because, of course, you know, any Seahawks fan is going to be really pleased at 5-0. and You're going to be ecstatic by that. You know, you can't be any better than 5-0. and There's still room. Hopefully, they are going to improve, especially on defence, and we can look forward. But I just keep getting flashbacks to last season. It feels very similar to last season to me. You know, constantly going through, you know, the Seahawks were 10-2 and last year. Mm. And all the way through that run, there were question marks of how sustainable is this the way that they're playing? You know, the defense isn't playing particularly well. They're winning games by the odd point here and there. They've, they've you know, a missed kick from Greg Zierliner, you know, a, a botched opportunity here, a bad performance from Baker Mayfield. They started the season last year getting bunches of turnovers, which helped the, you know, made up for the fact the defense wasn't playing particularly well. But then the turnovers just abruptly stopped like that and the defense regressed as a consequence. And I'm sat here now thinking, well, they've had, I think, 10 turnovers so far, second most in the league. Um, Their turnover percentage is really high. They're getting these big fourth down stops. But what if that stops happening? And now you're really getting into the meat of the the season now when you're going to play the NFC West teams. You've got to go to Buffalo. It's a crucial period. Can the Seahawks get through this gauntlet of games that are coming up now and, and continue to win this way? And really, the other thing is, is that you know, given that Russell Wilson has played as well as he is and, and, and the receivers are playing well and the pass pro is good and the running game is a nice compliment, is it too much to ask for this team to actually be able to win a few games with some degree of comfort, you know? Because, the, yeah. you know, when your offense is playing this way and Wilson's playing like an MVP, all the defense really has to do is compliment that. Mm. And you can win games 
without needing these dramatic ends and stops and stuff like that. And that, and that is something that, for me to really believe in this team that it can claim the number one seed, have a deep playoff run, win the NFC West, I think I kind of need to see a bit of that because it feels too much like last year at the moment. Yeah, since, since the start of the 2019 season, Seahawks are 12-1 and one in games that are decided by seven or fewer points and are 4-4 four and four in every other game, which kind of is proves your point. And also the t- touchdown drives on Sunday for the Seahawks were a minute and 42 seconds, 39 seconds, seven seconds, and one minute, 42 seconds. But that last one minute, 42 seconds, Adam, that if that is Russ's 2020 moment, isn't it? That 94 yards in the rain, which is historically not great for him against the defense, which had got to him and kept him penned in. But it just, everything was kind of, it, it's, it, is, it is his moment, isn't it? That, that yeah, 94 I, yards. I mean, you can't quantify clutch and you can't quantify what that means and how someone can deliver. But once the stop had been made that none of us had expected to happen, we probably all thought that we may not have got over the line, but no one thought that drive was ending anywhere apart from their red zone. Um, and I think that's what you can say has just been, you know, if Wilson has, has gone up levels, which he has in the last couple of years, the reliability factor of knowing that Wilson was going to take us, he was going to give us a chance to win from our own four yard line or whatever. Um, and even, you know, during that drive, you know, in, the, in the last, you know, the last set of four downs, I thought, you know, maybe they, could they run Chris Carson and they, you know, get from the eight or wherever the last pass was, you know, can he get to the four with, and then take the timeout that you had left over? It, it felt, it felt very similar to the end of the 49ers game last year. Um, where it was all just chaotic and we were going to have a chance to win it. But this time they actually got over the line. And um, I mean, that relationship they've, they've forged with Metcalf and you've got Lockett. And the, the defence, for me, is not something they can hang their hats on at all anymore. But yeah. for the first time ever, I think you in, in the Pete Carroll-Russell Wilson era, it's yeah. a, a properly elite level offence in terms of getting stuff done. And the relationships they've got between receivers and running backs and quarterbacks, like that, I... I back them to hang points on almost any team now, which I've never thought I'd say um, in the last seven or eight years. Yeah, Russell Wilson has five more touchdowns than any other quarterback in the NFL. Josh Allen's second with 14. He's just... But it is... It, it, that was everything we come to expect, but after the three hours we sat through before it, Rob, we didn't really expect it, did we? Well, you know, I remember flying all the way to Seattle to watch the Seahawks play Kirk Cousins uh, when he was at Washington in, in, the, in the pissing rain. Like, I mean, it was as bad as it was there. I mean, it, I was on the front row. So it was, I got absolutely soaked watching that game and it was relentless all the way through. And, and in the similar circumstances, Russell Wilson had the ball right at the end of the game. This is 2017. He needed to drive to get into field goal range. Blair Walsh had missed three kicks in the game, I think. So it wasn't, it wasn't a guarantee that he was going to make the kick, but he had, he had to get into field goal range, I think, to either tie it and take it to overtime or win the game. And he couldn't get it done. You know, the, there was, I think they got it to about halfway, got to fourth down, nothing happened. It was poor. It, it never felt convincing they were going to go and get it. And this is, you know, when Adam's talking about Wilson's elevated himself, this is what it means to me. That he can actually go 94 yards in conditions where he generally struggles when it's like that. And to make the big plays and just seem so calm and composed on those fourth downs, he's got players like DK Metcalf who... Has made some mistakes this season, but when it was yeah. absolutely necessary, made the plays. And you mentioned the Niners game last. I mean, just how eerily similar was it? 
that they got down to that. It's another fourth down. It's that side of the end zone that they go to to win the game. And the final score, if the Seahawks would have scored a touchdown against the Niners, if Jacob Hollister gets an extra yard, and get, it would have been 27-26, the exact same score. Huh. Um, I mean, it's just unbelievable, really. It was just that game. The, and also, the Niners dominated that game in Week mm-hmm. 17 last year, as the Vikings had, and it took some late heroics and Wilson to give the Seahawks any kind of a chance after the defense had got a stop in that game too. So the, the, the two games were so similar. Thankfully, this time the Seahawks came out on top. Yeah. Uh, also, Robert, uh, with Sunday, it kind of feels like the DK Metcalf ascension is somewhat complete, isn't it? I mean, he's third, I think, in the league of receiving yards. He has like two catches for the 500 yards, it feels like. But... I mean, the fact that Russell Wilson turned to him three times in that final drive kind of is a massive, massive testament to the confidence of the quarterback. But also, everyone on that sideline has him to make the play. And although I think he did a play earlier on third down, he made the play when it mattered most. And it's kind of everything that he was throwing out in the pre-draft has been thrown out the window within, what, 21 games, 22 games he's played in the NFL career? Well, certainly someone should have taken him before the end of the second round. I mean, it's quite ridiculous that he lasted that quite that long. I mean, I think that yeah. going into the draft, people were thinking because of injuries and, and, you know, the neck injury that he had in college was quite a serious one. It nearly ended his career. So I think a bit of hesitancy to take him in the top 10, for example, which is where he was being mocked immediately after he ran his 40-yard draft by, uh, 40-yard dash, by the way. Uh, I think that would have understood. If he did last to the late first round, someone would have taken him in the early second round understandable for him to last to the last pick in round two and he possibly would have even dropped into round three if the Seahawks hadn't traded up is preposterous he's a very talented player has he elevated I mean like Russell Wilson's playing exceptionally well so I kind of feel like if one of us was out there we'd we'd maybe got you know a few hundred yards by now so I think that when I see people I think Jamal Adams has compared him to Megatron on Twitter and you see in you know Chris Collins have mentions in the uh, Russell wants to be Joe Montana and he wants DK Metcalf to be Jerry Rice, and then and you're seeing all the stuff about Julio Jones and stuff like that. I kind of want to just pump the brakes on that. I mean, DK Metcalf is playing very well, but he's still got a lot of things he needs to work on. There's still too many drops. Even I'm not, I don't want to nitpick here, but you know, even when he goes up for the fourth down, <laughs> long catch, he's not high pointing the football. And this is the thing, you know, it, it, he's so big and his wingspan. So if Wilson throws it up there and says he should be the only one who's got a chance of catching a football, but he never high points the ball. He's quite a body catcher. His hands are inconsistent. There are still some, I still don't think he necessarily always makes the most of his size in the way that like a Julio Jones does. So I'm just saying there's a bit more to come from him possibly, which is a, a scary thought. If he can put it all together, then he can be even better than this. And he, he could be a, you know, a really fantastic potentially Hall of Fame player, especially with a quarterback like this. It's often where you land, isn't it, that you, whether yeah. you succeed or not. And he's landed on his feet with Russell Wilson. Yeah, well, two things. I may or may not, in the haze of Sunday night, compared, said he's Randy Moss, which is kind of doing the opposite to pumping any brakes on DK Metcalf. Also, I think the best play from DK Metcalf is when he nearly caught... And Russell Wilson just flung it like 60 yards down the field just to get rid of it. And he nearly caught up to it. It was like watching Ken Griffey in the center field at Safeco Field 20 years ago. It was, he's just, he's, uh, we've said a couple of years, Adam, we want to have fun watching this team and watching DK go from, you know, all the drops from the early first half of last season to what we're watching last couple of weeks is, is exactly that, isn't it? 
I mean, I, th- I actually thought Sunday was maybe a seminal moment in his career because I felt like he had gone from the fun player that scores all the really fun touchdowns that you could probably win the game without him. But, you know, when you want to have a laugh, you're chucking to DK to a guy <laughs> that actually in the biggest of big moments, I mean, the two fourth downs, he was the guy whose number got called upon. And I don't think that's happened before. I, mean, I know the Eagles in the playoffs last year, they flung a third and long to him, you know, when they probably could have defended the game out anyway. But when the game had to be won, I can't think of a time, maybe Rob, you can remember one, but I can't think of a time where DK's number has been called on the big players to win. And it did feel to me like it's a moment of like, all right, we've got this fun bloke who, you know, we enjoy slinging it to, but now actually he's going to be a guy that is going to be ascended to one of our more important players. And I thought that was a big moment. And if we are going to achieve big things this year, I, I thought that was quite, you know, it, it may be a moment that in America's game on, on the documentary we turned to as, uh, as one that really mattered. And the, you know, last season was funny because it, you, you make a good point there, Adam, because think of the end of the season. Whenever there was like a red zone, a big red zone moment, they would strangely go to Jacob Hollister. <laughs> and, and now you're right, you know, the, the focus on him. I mean, the, I even think when you think back to the Niners game, it was at least a couple of throws at the very end that went to Hollister in the, in the, mm. in the red zone. John Asua. John Asua. <laughs> Asua's another one. And then this, this moment, the primaries were Metcalf, Lockett. You know, I think the, the touchdown throw, there's a great breakdown on YouTube by JT O'Sullivan, who's the um, former Niners quarterback. And he was saying that on that kind of a play, Lockett's your primary read and then Metcalf. And because Cam Dantzler came off Metcalf as he was going across, that was the opportunity for Russell to hang in there, which he did very well under, you know, there was a free rusher who was going to hammer Russell. He got it out just in time to DK Metcalf. And those are the two guys you want to focus on. Possibly you could chuck a Greg Olson in there or even a Disley. Really, you want to go into Metcalf and Lockett in those situations. And it did. And um, yeah, that could well be the... Uh, the seminal moment and hopefully DK can build off that and, and can can be even better and cut out these just these little minor mistakes like the Dallas play and, and the drops in order to really reach his potential. Yeah, there's, uh, he's the only wide receiver in the league to post uh, 90 or more yards in every game this season. He's 33rd in the league in receptions, but he's third in yards and touchdowns. Uh, also, also, one of the scoring drives, Adam, was Chris Carson re, uh Reunite with Harrison Smith, who, if Harrison Smith ever ends up being a Hall of Famer, Chris Chris Carson is not going to be on that clip clip footage before before his induction, is he? Because he two years running now has made him look like somewhat of a fool. Yeah, Harrison Smith is one that really gets a bad rep from analytics slash Seahawk Twitter, and uh, I've never kind of had a strong enough opinion to carry the way but it did seem fairly uh, marked that he was literally hanging off the guy's legs it was a, a reminiscent of a, a, a classic beast mode run from three or four years ago or five or six years ago now we've probably not seen a seal receiver a running back run with such violence uh, and just determination to get to the end zone like that yeah he's like it, I, I kind of think that might have been his best game this season from Chris Carson he just kind of every run well, there weren't many of them because the Vikings kept the ball for three hours, but every run just seemed to be way more clinical and decisive than it possibly was for through the first couple of weeks of the season, Rob coming off his injury. Yeah, I, Carson's having a bit of a strange season because he's played very, very well, but it doesn't seem to have had the volume. You know, you have long stretches of the game where you're kind of wondering where he is. And then 
you know, as, as has been one of the big talking points on Seahawks Twitter, you know, bizarrely this week is, is how often Travis Homer gets a touch. And but I'm like everybody else. When I see Travis Homer there taking a handoff, you know, my heart sinks a little bit as well, just because Chris is playing so well. But ultimately, if you want Travis Homer to be in there doing the pass protecting, doing the kind of things that he really excels at, you have to at least have the team think he might take a carry every now and again. So if he has to run the ball three or four times a game in order to keep your offense honest, to have him in there in pass pro, to not be giving it as a tell that every time Travis Homer comes in for Chris Carson, you're throwing the ball because he's in there for pass pro, yeah. you're going to have to give him some touches every now and again. So, um, I, you know, maybe, maybe it was Chris Carson's best game. I think in, in certain situations, you maybe like to see him get the ball a little bit more. Um, they've, they've kind of spelled him quite nicely so far. He's not been overworked. He can be, I mean, he's a, he's a massive X factor for the Seahawks. You know, if you're talking about really important key skill players, for me, he's right up there with DK and Tyler Lockett. He's such an important player. And without him, the running game just doesn't feel the same. I mean, if they have to rely on Carlos Hyde and DJ Dallas and Travis Homer for the rest of the year, even Rashad Penny, it, it, to me, just won't feel the same as if they've got big Chris in there with his explosive qualities, his ability in the, in the passing game and his ability to run through people like Harrison Smith and just produce those electrifying plays. Yeah, he's got, he's got just 61 carries in the first five games. This point last year, he had 94 carries. So that kind of points to his usage has been slowed down. But obviously that helps when the quarterback is flinging it all over the all over the pitch, Adam. Look at the research you've done for this podcast. Mate, I mean, you really, really put the work in. A so boring Wednesday. Yeah, Five please. years and we finally <laughs> arrived at a research pod. I love it. <laughs> I have nothing else to do today, so why not? Uh, also on the offence, Rob, this O-line is, obviously Russell Wilson got sacked a few times, but more often than that with them on Sunday, you could point to him holding on to the ball because the secondary just enveloped everyone. But the O-line, it's... Is it quite good or is, is that something I also need to put the brakes on? Well, I think it's, it's done well in pass pro. I, I think on Sunday, my initial thought was probably that the pass pro wasn't as good. But then we actually go back and watch the game and you listen to people who know more about you know, the X and O's side of it than I do. I, I, was, I think really just got to give credit to Mike Zimmer and yeah. say that he did a good job confusing Russell Wilson in that first half. Russell had time. He, he was sort of looking deep and he was looking for options. There was nothing really there. They were starting off in a certain look, then they would mix it up right at the snap. So I think that you just have to give Zimmer some, some credit there. And I think overall, the pass pro has been very good. If you look at things like PFF, basically everybody, you know, even people like Brandon Shell, who you didn't expect necessarily to be good in pass pro, he, he grade, he's grading quite well. Ethan Posey is grading well in pass pro. Dwayne Brown, I think, is their second best performer on the offense in general. Mike Yapati's done well. Jordan Sims not quite as well, but... You know, he can come in and play a game at left guard if needs be. So I think, I think that has been a positive. It probably also helps that Russell Wilson is playing as well as he is. I mean, if, if the quarterback is excelling, if he's getting the ball out quickly, obviously that helps your pass protection as well. But I think it is a unit that is, it deserves, uh, you know, two thumbs up so far. And it is, it's a big improvement on previous years. Yeah, it's, I, think, I think, Adam, you would call it Spursy, but it is quite Seahawky that they've had Ethan Posich for four, four years on the team just drifting behind Justin Britt and the year he's in, his, he's in a contract year and we decide to play him and he doesn't give up a pressure for three weeks. Yeah, Spursy would be selling him and him scoring 30 goals a season. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, look, better late than never when it comes to someone like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the best you can say is that I haven't really seen any just embarrassments coming through the middle middle of that line. I mean, obviously, Mikey Patty wasn't available. I'm not his biggest fan. Um, I didn't think they particularly missed him on on Sunday. Um, 
I, I mean, I can't even believe they, they got out with this game. Now, now that I'm kind of trying to think of the game back through my head, I can't really believe in any way that they won. I mean, Alvin <laughs> Cook was, uh, I don't know what you guys think, but I've not seen a runner against us. He, he was just different, Alvin yeah, Cook. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the violence and the angles he was able to take. I mean, he, he genuinely looked unstoppable. I can't think of a guy they've played against who, who was that good. I mean, obviously, you've got a couple of, you know, in the first half, just nothing free. Um, the offensive line did okay, but Wilson didn't feel as comfortable. It was a bit jittery at the start. And um, I mean, to come out of that game with a win, I mean, fair play to all of them. Um, it, it's pretty remarkable. But I mean, someone like Posich, I mean, talk about taking your opportunity because I think there was a lot of people in the summer who were lamenting Justin Britt being, being cut um, and you know, not being brought back in, in autumn time when it looked like, you know, we, we needed, you know, he could come back. But Fair play to the guy for, for you know if if ever there was a pity of, of the next man up mantra he, he's probably taken it. Yeah, I mean two hundred and one rushing yards the Vikings got obviously the two running backs on Sunday. The Seahawks did not convert a third down all night either, Robert. So like every every angle you look at, you're like, okay, cool, Vikings are two and three or whatever they would have been, but they they're not. It's it's just a strange strange Seahawk thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, the Vikings, are to, 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 for them to be one and four and for the Bears to be four and one, I mean, it kind of sums up 2020, doesn't it? I, I thought the Vikings were really good. I think, mm. like Adam said, it's, it's astonishing that the Seahawks won. I mean, to be outplayed like they were on both sides of the ball for such long stretches in the game uh, and for it to come down to, you know, a piece of genius from Russell Wilson at the end, you know, the 94-yard drive and, a you know, a a matter of inches really on a stop and, and, and the, the fine balances as I mentioned earlier that, that if they convert that or even if he cuts right and he, he run he walks into the end zone if he cuts right it's an absolute hammering on the scoreboard as well as the performance but just that one stop enables the Seahawks to win and I think for me it's just it, it kind of uh, last season the, the points differential was what plus seven for the whole year and they won 11 games and you kind of think, and lots of, I didn't think they could do that again and win 11 games again. I thought they were going to have to do better than that in order to have the same kind of, if you want to call it fortune, maybe they create their own look in that, that regard. Uh, but here we are. You know, they're winning in exactly the same way as, as last year. My only concern is that you look at this defense, everybody at the moment is kind of reassuring themselves. You know, Seahawks fans want to believe in this team. They're 5-0. and they want reasons to think this is a team that can go to the Super Bowl. The record says that they can. And they watch the defense and they think that's not a defense that can get you to a Super Bowl. And then they go and look at DVOA and they see that the Seahawks are ranked 19th in defense. And they think, oh, that's not too bad. And then, you know, they go and look at things like <clears throat> oh, the turnover percentage is good and, and they've created this much pressure so far. But I think this is where sometimes, you know, I, I, analytics are, are, are definitely, you need to pay attention to them. You need to look at them. The DVOA is as it is because Seahawks run defense is eighth, is ranked eighth, and the pass defense is ranked 28th. So it, it averages itself out as like 19th overall. The run defense wasn't tested until last Sunday and it gave up 201 yards. If it gets tested more over the next few weeks, they ain't going to be eighth in run defense anymore. No. And, that, and that 19 ranking is going to be coming down into, the, into near the late 20s again. And that's the issue for me. This is an offense that can, and a quarterback that can take you as far as you want to go. Last year, the defense, it didn't look like it had a cat in hell's chance of doing that. And when you watch this defense, it's like, we're going to give up 500 yards, guys. 
how do you want to do it? Do you want to throw for 400 <laughs> or do you want to run for a couple of hundred? And whatever way, if they blitz, we'll, we'll give it up in explosive plays. If we sit back, you can slow cut, slow cut, eight yards here, seven yards there in the passing game. You can have five yards of carry on the run. You can convert every third and short, every fourth and short. And it's kind of like, well, that's what's going to happen on the defense. Now let's hope that they can create a turnover or somebody makes a mistake like Fitzpatrick and, and Kirk Cousins did. And let's hope that Russell Wilson can capitalize if he gets an opportunity to win a game. Because, you know, some of these turnovers, it's, it's reassuring in one ex, to one extent. Ryan Fitzpatrick made mistakes. And that Kirk Cousins interception, he sh- I don't think he should have thrown that pass the way that he did under no pressure whatsoever. That was a mistake by Kirk Cousins. And it's little things like that that they're benefiting from. If you don't do that against the Rams, you'll see a game like they had in LA last year. Yeah. Uh, also defensively, Adam, it kind of... The run defense, especially the 200, 100, I think Dolphins got over 100 as well. It's it's wilting and it kind of feels a little bit like the snacks signing. It's not as much so much a panic, but it's it's in the vicinity of one because Pete Carroll said he's not, he's nowhere close. I think that's how he it's in like football shape, and that's not something you want to hear from someone who is supposed to be coming in to shore things up up there. No, I mean, it sounds like he's two stone overweight, which is not an insignificant amount. I mean, even if it is only 1% of your weight, two stone is still pretty significant, <laughs> um, you know, to lose. But it's interesting that Rob was talking about, you know, the, the, the plays, because now that I think about it, last season we had two primetime games at the wire, at home to the Rams and away to San Francisco, that we basically won on missed field goals in the last, in the last second. Obviously, we went and scored one in, in San Francisco, but whatever. And here you've had two running plays in the last minute of primetime games, one by Cam Newton and one by, uh, I can't think his name's not Alexander Hamilton, but the way the commentator was saying it, but it's obviously Madison. Um, and there was a big thing on Seahawk Twitter today about people getting bananas that Dan Hansis from NFL Network put a sixth in their power rankings. And, you know, people were going absolutely bananas because we're 5-0, therefore we're the best team since the unbeaten Dolphins and whatever. But as it happens... I, you know, I know we had a brief chat about it and I got into it on with a producer from KJR that I don't think it's that wild that someone would think that we're the sixth best team because, all right, we did make the big plays, but we are two slash three plays away from being three and two, if you're being very generous, could easily be a two and three football team at home. Yeah. Like yeah. easily, you know, as easy as it would be for a guy to make a 30-yard chip shot field goal that's how easy it normally is for Cam Newton to pick up one yard on on a rush, running play like that, and and Matteson would have been on Sunday. So um, I, I don't know how sustainable this is. I mean, it's obviously a, a huge. Um, it's a great thing to see that your team in the biggest moments can turn things around and, and be clutch. But you've got to think that at some point, an offensive coordinator is going to line up on fourth and one at some point and say, "By the way, running back." just hold off a little bit and you can bounce outside because they massively overcommit to the inside. That's the safest place to be. So I don't know how sustainable this team is. I mean, I'm enjoying it more than last year. I think there's probably a higher ceiling than there was last year, but I don't know what you guys think, but I mean, it doesn't feel that different in terms of from a quality perspective. And I think to be ranked second in the NFC with a more stacked AFC is roughly where we should be. Yeah, I, I, no, I agree. I'm not so sure. I think the biggest thing about Hansis is that the Titans are above us. I'm not too, not too sure on that one, but obviously. But no, I, I, yeah, like I think I've said to you, Adam, that everything in that defence seems to be getting worse, which is possibly the biggest 
indictment on the guy who's supposed dubbed the defensive coordinator in Ken Norton. I think there's no clear player or aspect of the defensive play under him, which has improved. Obviously, Bobby Wagner's good. Jamal Adams is good. Uh, Gerard Reed played unbelievably on Sunday. Shaq Griffin flashes. But, like, you just watch someone like Trey Flowers, who just looks... Div- he looks devoid of ev- anything when, like a year ago, he looked like like the best uh, the best uh, conversion project Pete Carroll's ever had at the position, and now he just looks like he's he's skirting towards a f- fast exit into the season. It just I think that's the biggest issue. There's just no one defensive side of the ball is clearly or consistently improving week on week. They're just kind of doing what they do, Rob. Can I just make a quick point on the Titans? I, I think what people need to remember here, and this is something that Seahawks Twitter could do with remembering as well, Tennessee got to the AFC Championship game last year. They beat the Ravens. They didn't just beat the Ravens. They hammered the Ravens in their own backyard. That's the 14-2 and two Ravens um, to get to the AFC Championship. They're unbeaten. And last night, they looked fantastic. I mean, I stayed up and watched that game. And um, I, I just thought they were really really good they're, they're really balanced Ryan Tannehill just fits now listen Ryan Tannehill will get that team to the playoffs probably with a really good record and he'll probably lose a game to Mahomes or Lamar Jackson or Cam Newton or somebody and the Titans won't win the Super Bowl and they may not even get to the Super Bowl but I tell you they will get there as one of the highest seeds in the AFC because they are well coached well organized and they've had something that the Seahawks haven't had so far this year which is a quality, comfortable, hammering win against a good team in Buffalo who had all the momentum, who were playing well. Josh Allen's playing well. They got hammered last night by the Titans. So that, for them to be above Seattle, they're also unbeaten. For them to be, I have no issue with that whatsoever. And sixth, I think you could put the Seahawks fourth, fifth, sixth, first, second, third. You could put them wherever. But I don't think there's an issue with putting them six. I think you could make that case that they're not as good as the Chiefs, the Ravens, the Packers, the Rams, the Titans, the Steelers. You can make that argument, but you could also make the argument that they're better than those teams. And, you know, the fact that he's put that there, I think the Seahawks fans have generally been quite delicate this year. I've, no, I've never had more abuse through emails and on the blog than this year. And, you know, when the lockdown was on, I said, okay, I'm going to carry on writing during the summer, which I've never done before. And that was the, the silliest decision I've ever made because then I, I wrote about things that I wanted to write about, which was to critique the off-season, to critique the decisions they'd made. I, th- I, did a, I did a tally. A third of my articles were about the defense going into the new season. And people just didn't want to hear it. They don't want to hear any criticism. After the Patriots game, see it on Reddit and on Twitter, people are complaining that Cam Newton got mentioned a couple of times on top of all the Russell Wilson MVP hype. It's like, look, Russell Wilson gets... They started the broadcast on Sunday with a montage from Sue Bird that was a, 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 an homage to Rus- why Russell Wilson should be the MVP. That was there. If you're a Vikings fan watching that, you're thinking, is this, have I tuned into the wrong thing? I'm a Spurs fan now to watch MUTV on Sky Sports after we beat them 6-1 out Old Trafford, so I fully understand how you'd be pissed <laughs> off by that. I, it, look, it's just... I, 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 don't think, I don't see why anybody should be delicate about it. In terms of the defence, you mentioned... Ken Norton there, Stu. I, I think for me, it comes down to everything that, that we've talked about, or I've talked about for the whole of the off-season, which was they started the off-season saying, we're going to fix the pass rush, that's our priority. 
and they ended up replacing Jadavian Clowney with Benson Mayowa and hoping that a 31, 32-year-old Bruce Irving playing Sam was going to be enough. They spent $50 million in free agency and, who's their most, and, and where's any of it gone? You know, who has come in from that haul of $50 million and dramatically improved this team? They've spent three first-round picks this year on their defense. They've spent a second and a third on this defense in Daryl Taylor. And they're paying guys like Bobby Wagner $18 million a year. And when you look at the personnel on this defense, I, I don't know anybody who could coach this unit up in, in, into, a, into a top unit. So I don't think Ken Norton deserves a pass by any stretch because he's clearly not. He and Pete Carroll deserve it's Pete Carroll's defense as well. Neither of them deserve any credit because they're not getting more out of this group than perhaps you're not surprising anybody. They're giving up a ridiculous number of yards. But I also think this is a personnel thing first and foremost. They did not do a good enough job building up this defense and they haven't done a good enough job since 2018 with all of the resources they've had, trading away players like Frank Clark, having Clowney and letting him walk. And then the guys that they brought in and the investments they've made just haven't been good enough. If I was going to play devil's advocate to that, I mean, I did make a point on Sunday that, you know, it's hard to expect a lot more from this defense considering you've got Jamal Adams, all that investment, Jordan Brooks with that investment and Daryl Taylor. One of my best mates is called Daryl Taylor. So it always seems quite weird to be talking about that. And he's not an NFL caliber athlete. I can tell you that for sure. Um, none of those were on the field. To be fair, to be fair we're not sure this Daryl Taylor is either. That's also very true. Um, <laughs> none of those guys were on the field. So to play devil's advocate, is there a chance saying, look, the investment they made, we can't see it yet. Now, conditioning is as, you know, your best ability is your availability, as, as the old saying goes. Conditioning is a big thing, but is there a chance that when those three do cut, get plugged back in, we could see it? You know, let, let's say we're at a, a four out of 10 now. What does it take you to? A six, a seven? I'm not sure. I mean, the, the, what I would counter with that a little bit is that um, Daryl Taylor in the build-up to the draft a, a few people asked me about him because obviously he looks like a Seahawks pass rusher and I kept saying I think he's going to go undrafted because <laughs> the, the talk was that all of the talk was he missed he, he went to the senior bowl and they wouldn't let him do anything he went to the combine and they still wouldn't let him do anything and all of the talk around that period you know all of the, the insiders your Tony Paulines your people like that were saying the league is very concerned about his injury that he, he kind of played through at Tennessee He's got a rod in his leg. They're very worried about it. And, and because of COVID, you couldn't get him into your building to give him a proper medical, to properly work on that leg. And I, and I think that was the case of the combine. So I don't think he went through any of the medical checks. So everybody was saying teams are going to play very cautiously with players like that because you run the risk of drafting a player who can't pass a physical and never plays a down for you. So players that before the draft, you would take off your board and wouldn't even have on the board are, are possibly going to be on there this year because you don't have all of the information. So people were thinking, Daryl Taylor might not get drafted. And then the draft comes along <laughs> and the Seahawks trade up for him because he's pretty much the only Seahawks-style pass rush that was available to them in that class. It was a really thin defensive end class. So I'm not sure if anybody should ever be that confident that he was going to play this year, and I've got, hate to say it, I don't think we'll see him this season. I'm not sure what the outlook is for him long-term either. Mm. And then you look at Jordan Brooks, who they spent a first-round pick on. They drafted a, a Will linebacker of the future. They'd signed Bruce to play Sam. 
They had not cut KJ Wright, who they were paying $10 million. And they're playing Bobby Wagner, 18 million. He was never going to get on the field this year. So you've drafted, for me, a non-premium position of the future. You're, you're, you're planning ahead for life after KJ Wright, who incidentally has been Seattle's best defender and probably warrants a contract extension with the way that he's played this year. So what do you do then? Do you, do you let KJ leave in the off-season and then force Jordan Brooks into... I don't know. I just don't think that was the best use of resources to help build this team up. And then with Jamal Adams, um, he's, he's, that's a fair point because he's been injured. But even then, I'm not sure that blitzing him as much... He was the second most blitz player after three weeks behind only Shaquille Barrett. Yeah, and they, think, and, they kept, and they kept doing to Ryan Neal on Sunday as well. Yeah, it's, it's just... I, I want to see Jamal Adams blitz, but I want to see him to play a bit of safety as well because that's what he is. Um, so, and they're relying on him as, the, as a, like a, the, almost like the, the uh, designated pass rusher. So I'm not sure if, the, if they've gone about this the right way. Yeah, not, I mean, Daryl Taylor after Mike McDowell, I don't think they'll ever pick a pass rush in the second round again, would they? Other mm-hmm. uh, positives from Sunday? I mean, Michael Dixon, Adam, is kicking the leather off the ball. I, I played golf on Saturday and managed, I don't know how I managed it, I managed to, uh, when I hit my drive, the cover, the plastic cover on my tee went off. So all was left was wood on the floor. It was kind of what Michael Dixon did to the football on Sunday night, wasn't it? I was going to say hitting the ball 40 yards, which is probably about right for you with the driver. Um, it went straight. That's all that matters. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, I mean, the accuracy has been brilliant. I mean, it, obviously, the analytics brigade does go bananas when anyone kicks it you know, from further than the 45-yard line, which is you know, neither here nor there, whatever your view is. But there are a couple of times where I think Ugo Amadi is just kind of standing there waiting on the one-yard line just for it to drop into the bread basket. Um, which if you can do it, then, you know, good, good on them. Um, he's been great. There's been some, there's been, the special teams actually seems a lot better. Like, yeah. and the kick and the pass and the punt coverage have been a lot better. I, I, you know, obviously we're not talking back to the, the John Ryan punt days in 2013, where I think they gave up about 10 yards total in punt returns in the first 10 games of the year. But, you know, Nick Ballore always seems to be there. Amadi always seems to be there. Um, the Gunners seem to be doing a, a really good job to my incredibly untrained eye. You'll probably know a lot more about that than I will, Rob. Yeah, I think the special teams has been fantastic. I think the, another positive is, one of the things, that, having just criticised the defence as much as I have, I think they've actually done a fairly decent job getting sort of those second and third level defenders into the rotation. I think Demontre Moore has been really good. Mm-hmm. Um, given that he's costing you know a cheese sandwich for this season, I think it's it's a really useful pickup. You know the problem for Seattle is not and Jonathan Bullard had a fan you know graded superbly against um, against Minnesota. That's a really positive start from him, and and look, I loved him coming out of the of Florida when he was in the draft. In this scheme, it's the first time he's played in this kind of scheme, which for me is the best kind of fit for him. Could he end up being a bit of a steal there? The, the thing that they're missing is that obviously that premier guy. It's that, you know, it's that one guy off the edge who can just win one v one to bring it all together. But I think that the Moore signing and hopefully the Bullard signing, I think Mayo has been fine as a you know yeah. rotational rusher. Um, and LJ Collier's, you know, I don't think LJ Collier's playing up to a first round pick level standard, but he's not been a liability. So I think they've got those guys. They just missed that number one. Yeah, and also Alton Robinson kind of popped immediately and it hasn't really I don't really remember hearing his name on Sunday but he's someone who's also got in that rotation more readily than maybe we should have expected from a what fifth round pick was Robinson Rob 
Yeah, fifth round pick. And I think they've, I don't know, it seems to me that they've reined in the, the snaps for the younger guys against Minnesota. I'm not sure if there was a reason for that or not. Uh, you know, DJ Dallas wasn't very involved. Alton Robinson didn't seem to be that involved. And I, I don't know if it was just they thought we're in for a war here and, uh, you know, it's going to be a real battle. We've, we've got to get a few more experienced guys out there. But um, no, I think Alton's shown some potential. And for a fifth round pick, he's contributing perhaps more than you'd expect at this stage. Yeah. Uh, also, another thing on defence, Adam, it's not Ben, but don't break because they are obviously breaking, but they have only given up eight touchdowns through the air. I mean, it's. I mean, that's all Miami did was kick field goals until garbage garbage time. This that is one thing to kind of they, they they are managing occasionally to keep teams out of the end zone. So it's not a complete tire fire. Is that was that glitching at the biggest of shores? I think in terms of what they've played against, it it's a fair point to say. But when you are looking at the power rankings and you look at the teams that have been ranked against us there's part of me that thinks if we had to play any of the teams above us in the NFL power rankings, they could absolutely hang 40, 50 points on us <laughs> if we weren't careful. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Lamar Jackson, I've got my doubts on him as a passer, but if they could get their rushing attack going against us and, you know, given the, the way we defended it last week, it could be a disaster. Um, you know, Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes. Even the Steelers, you know, with the number of excellent receivers they've got, you know, and decent defensive coordinators or whatever, that would worry me. Derek Henry and Tannehill and play action, that would worry me. So it, I have to say, even the Rams, and I shouldn't say that in such a negative tone, but those games I'm looking at as, you know, no one's talking about the Rams. It's, you know, people talking about the Bills being the big game um, and the Niners because it's like a, a historical rivalry. I think the Rams could give us serious problems uh, in those two games because I think that they're gone very much under the radar. Um, at which I'm sure Sean McVay would be delighted about. But I, I think they look as good as any offense that's going at the moment. I don't know what you think about that, Rob. You're absolutely right. The Rams are the two games. The two games against the Rams, for me, will define everything because the Rams have pretty much got the same schedule as Seattle. So they're going mm. to play the same teams. And I don't think there's, you know, the, the, the Rams lost to the Bills. They shouldn't have lost to the Bills. That was a ridiculous flag at the end of the game, which you know, bailed out the bills at the end of that one. So they could easily have the same 5-0 and record. So they're not going to go anywhere. I think what will decide the NFC West is going to be those two games. If they split the games, it would, it would be a result, I think, for Seattle. Mm. I think that that would be really good if they could just win one of those two games. But when you look at the last five, I mean, I've not got the numbers to hand now, but the Rams have put on 30 to 40 points against the Seahawks every time they've played in the last five times. The Rams have a four and one record in that in that run, and it would have been five and zero oh if it wasn't for Greg Zeal. I'm missing that kick at the end of the game in Seattle. So the Seahawks have real trouble defending the Rams, and um, I, I just I worry a little bit. And as much as we talk about good pass pro, you know that a real test of your pass protection is Aaron Donald. So you know, hmm. let's see how Ethan Posick and Mike Yapati and Jordan Simmons and Damian Lewis, the rookie, handle. You know, big Aaron Donald in there, you know, blowing things up and, and, and what everything that the Rams can do. So that's going to decide it for me. Can you go to LA and win a game and really make a statement there? If the Seals can do that, then, um, you know, you, you, they could just they can achieve whatever they want to this year. I think that will be a huge statement if they can do that, but I've got my doubts. Yeah, the, I think the biggest thing with the Rams this year compared to recent years is they're not relying everything on Todd Gurley. They've got Malcolm Brown, Daryl Henderson, Cam Akers was active again on Sunday. It's, it's kind of, that seems to be helping everything on offence. So they're not just running one guy into the ground, Rob. 
you can get after him. I don't know if either of you two saw the Giants game against the yeah. Rams. Um, and the Giants just did what the Patriots did, which was, you know, put a couple of extra body. Like the Rams will just line sort of six guys up and they want to stretch and they want to misdirect and they want to bring everything across and, they, you know, um, they don't want to play off zone and just sort of run to the space. And the Giants didn't let them do that. They put two guys on the end and said, okay, we're going to take that away. The Rams were held to 245 um, yards, which is the least... It's the, it's the fewest yards they've ever had under McVeigh. I think before their game-winning drive, the Giants had outgained them. Yeah, but they, they held the Rams to the lowest number of yards in the McVeigh era, which is incredible. Mm. For the Giants to do that, the Giants <laughs> are 0-5. And, mm. then, and then when you look at what Belichick did in the Super Bowl, he held them to 260 yards and three points. So there is a way to limit and restrict this. But for whatever reason, the Seahawks haven't quite been able to emulate that. Now, I think the whole thing about playing Marquise Blair at, at nickel and having the safeties and trading for Jamal Adams was a direct response to the Rams. I think the Seahawks' plan this year was to have something similar to that, to have a, even the Jordan Brooks pick, what did the Patriots do? Hightower on one side of the line and then a safety on the other side. I think it was McCourty. It might have been somebody else. And I think the Seahawks were going to play one of their linebackers, maybe even Jordan Brooks at one side and Marquise Blair at the other. And they were going to try and emulate the Patriots defensive plan against the Rams. Now, whether they can still do that now that Marquise Blair's out, Jordan Brooks is out, whether they have to adjust a little bit, I'm not sure. I'm telling you, they have to do something to try and do things differently against the Rams. They can't line up in base like they did twice last year and just get gashed and gashed. They have got to try and mimic some of what the Giants have been doing. The problem is... The Giants show the way to do it. The following week, Washington plays them. Washington can't get anywhere near the Rams and the, you know, the absolutely coastal win. So you can get after them, but they can turn it on like that. They've got a plan. They've got a counter. Yeah, I think uh, the Washington had uh, no pass player of more than six yards on Sunday against uh, the Rams' defence, which is uh, not good, Adam. No, not ideal. I mean, a potential bin candidate for me would be the Redskins, sorry, the football team for even putting Alex Smith in the game because I don't know about you guys, but I was watching every player that game with my eyes firmly behind my hands, just hoping that the leg just didn't, you know, collapse in and itself, especially when Aaron Donald took a piggyback riding his back. That was uh, slightly terrifying, but um, no, the, the, the football team did not look particularly good against the Rams. And I do think it may even, even Goff, I think it's probably having his best, best true season that, that he's had. Um, you know, it just looks a bit more comfortable in the, in the offense. I hate to say it because I think he's garbage in, in general. But um, yeah, they, they, they look at him, they're going to cause a lot more trouble than they're being given credit for at the moment. Yeah, and then uh, Shanahan's lurking as well, even though he doesn't seem to know who his quarterback is at the minute, Rob. No, I found that a very pleasing result of the weekend. <laughs> um, it was quite enjoyable to watch the... It wasn't just a loss... But you know, an forty-three. lacking, you know, of, of of the 49ers by a Dolphins team that kind of just biding the time until they can introduce to a tug of Iloa. I mean, they're kind of just for them this season is just a try not to lose so many games to ruin things, you know, and and then eventually set the stage for the new quarterback. So, so for them to go and hammer the the Niners have got real problems. It's not just the injuries, you know. Richard Sherman's going to be out for a bit longer. Bosa's out. Solomon Thomas is out. Um, you know, the receivers have been banged up, haven't they? The running backs are banged up. Their offensive line's got issues. They've got problems everywhere. And then Jimmy G comes in and, and just has an absolute disaster, does not look healthy. You know, they're, they're then kind of like trying to pick between CJ Bethard and Nick Mullen to, to try and get them through. You know, I don't want to tempt fate for the fact because the Silk will play the Niners twice. 
But I, there was part of me this week that worried a little bit that they might somehow fluke the way into like a top five pick again <laughs> and then end up with like a Jamar Chase or yeah. a Pene Sewell or, <laughs> you know... Justin a, Fields. Or, or, or even a Trevor Lawrence, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then they suddenly come out of this thing with, you know, another great player and, the, and you know, and next year they'll, they'll come back even bigger and better than ever before. But the problem for the Niners is pretty clear. They've got a, a fantastic coach having in a fantastic scheme and they've got some really quality players. But I just don't think you can trust Jimmy G. Um, we did an, I did a podcast of my own and, and we did an NFC West preview and um, we talked about the Niners and just said, great team, but I, don't, I just don't feel Jimmy G... He's got a lot to prove. And all of the comments were from Niners fans going, how dare you say that? He's got to the Super Bowl. He's quality. And then, you know, a few games in, we're all here thinking, well, have they got a quarterback on the roster that can lead them to the promised line? And I don't think they have. Yeah, I've got a weird feeling that Shanahan may uh, call up Matt Ryan in the offseason and try and get him to come because they were really good together three, four years ago. And I just got a feeling that he may wave adios to Jimmy G. Also with the Niners, I think they... Them losing DeForest Buckner has completely derailed everything. I think that is a ma- obviously they lost Bosa and Thomas in the season, but Buckner is just killing it for the Colts, and him not doing it for the 49ers will give us a bit of a respite for those two games. I don't. Yeah, I mean it's obviously the biggest cliche about how important the trenches are, but if you do look at the teams that have made market progress and, and regression this year, I mean look at the, the way in which the Cleveland Browns' offensive line has been able to transform the team that they are. Um, yeah, even us with a little bit of improved pass protection, it's made such a difference in, into how the team can function. Um, and the, the Niners are the opposite. I mean, they've lost two or three hallmark stars in that defensive line. And what was two seconds to get the ball out has now become three, three and a half. And even someone like Ryan Fitzpatrick, who's got you know all the wherewithal in the world uh, to do something, was just able to pick them apart. And you know, I don't think you can exaggerate enough how important those two lines of scrimmage are. And if you were going to be... Uh, you know, Debbie Downer out the Seahawks is probably where you'd look at and say that they're, it's only good enough to take you to a certain level and probably not take you all the way to the promised land is, is what I'd probably fear. Yeah, Rob? Yeah, I think that um, Joey Bosa, Nick Bosa is, I think losing him is a bigger deal than I think maybe people realise because he's just so dynamic, so quick off the edge you have to constantly have attention towards him. I think he only had something like seven or eight sacks last year. But the opportunities that he created for everybody else, because you do have to slide your protection a little bit more weighted to his side, has really impacted everything. And, and also, teams can get on a roll, can't they? I mean, like, you look at the Niners last year. It was just that they were like a runaway train for a while. Mm. They, got, they started winning games early. They won a few close games. If you remember the sort of the first two or three games of the season... The Niners didn't look amazing. They were just winning. And then they gathered pace. And you could see that belief growing and players are really emerging. And then all of a sudden, George Kittle's unstoppable. You've got this amazing defensive line, which is destroying teams. And, and they got into a rhythm and they've been kicked out of that rhythm now because of the injuries. You know, Kittle's, a bit, you know, Kittle's back now, but him he's, he's obviously not 100%. And he's not been there for the first four weeks this season. Your quarterback's not healthy, and it, it all has a big impact there. So I think that from a Seahawks perspective, those two games look a, a, a lot different than they did it before. I think the Cardinals games, after two weeks, you'd have thought, oh, they're going to be really difficult. Now you don't quite know what you're going to get from the Cardinals, and they've lost Chandler Jones, which yeah, is a huge loss because he always plays well against Seattle, doesn't he? Um, it's, the, it's the Rams games. You know, I think that 
it's it's those two which will be the difference between you know whether the Seahawks end up 11 wins 12 wins or whether they end up winning the NFC West getting the number one seed and um, and, and giving themselves the best chance because that's really you want to be you want to get up to that number one seed, don't you? You want to be the team that has, has, has got a bye week, has got the home games, is, is sort of in control, is playing the weakest seed that's going to come to your house and play every week up until the NFC Championship game. And when the Seahawks have had that number one seed, they get to the Super Bowl. So that's what they need to try and target. And with Wilson playing this way, they can go for it. They just got to, find, you know, I hope before the trade deadline, they, they can bring in one pass rusher, someone off the edge who can just win a few 1v1s get that sack percentage up from it's 3.6%. You know, a couple of years ago in 2018, it was more like 7 8%. If they can get somebody in who can just get a few more sacks, create a few more uh, longer third downs, and when they're in third down, get off the field by getting a sack, not give up third and long, then I think the Seahawks have got every chance. You just need that one player. They need to replace, essentially, Frank Clark, which they've been trying to do for a couple of years. Yeah, so Seahawks are in bye week this week. It's Arizona. It's Arizona. Uh, that's, yeah, that's right, isn't it? Arizona in 10 days uh, kicks off a pretty tough six, seven week run where they play Buffalo, uh, Rams, the Niners, and then the Cardinals again. Uh, spin in the bin, Adam. Let's do it. Cool. I'll go first because with all my prep, I've actually got prep. Hey. Uh, well, the first one, uh, CBS, because I don't think anyone really needs to see so many angles and slow-mos of Dak Prescott's leg and ankle, Adam. Yeah, that and also the the necessary, in some quarters, hot takes about what this means for his contract. You know, with, within whilst the guy was still being carted off, they're talking about why he should have signed a deal. You know, Ed Werder, I think, was, was the main culprit, really pretty unnecessary work but yeah I mean when they know that the replay is going to be gruesome do we really need to see it because uh, I don't I mean I do feel a bit sorry for Tony Romo who's going to have the uh, have that it's bit of cramp. commentary hang over him for a long time uh, you know I think hope it's just cramp when yeah. we can see what's going on and they can't you do feel a little <laughs> bit sorry for the commentator uh, in, that, in that moment yeah but I think but also with CBS so they did get it right because they just they shut up didn't they when they when obviously carting them off the field and stuff you saw Jason Garrett go up to um McCarthy and it was just it was quite cool seeing like the, the flood of respect and appreciation that everyone at stadium all the players and coaches on both sidelines have for someone who's been in he's been in the firing line of some idiots over the last few weeks Rob yeah you know I think it, it's hard I mean I, I've having been in um having been on the radio and commentating when things happen that you don't expect it's it's very hard to sort of know what to do on the on the fly when mm. you're on air, and 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 sometimes things you, you're basically you might be being told just fill just fill or, or say this or people are in your ear all the time, and and you might say something that on reflection you wish you hadn't, um, so it can be difficult. But you know, in a situation like that, there is something quite powerful about not saying anything, and mm. um, and letting it breathe. So. Um, so can I, if, if we're doing in the bin, can I, on a similar note with broadcasting, can I throw one in there? Please. Of, of, of Chris Collins with, from the, there was a couple of Chris Collins with moments that really sort of irked me at the weekend. One was him saying that Ken Norton had got it all sussed out <laughs> at one point in the game. When, you know, everybody's watching Minnesota like driving away, you know, 200 plus <laughs> yards, constantly extending the drives and he's going, nah, and he's, and he's on the broadcast saying, he's got, he's got the number. And I just said, what are you watching? The <laughs> part of the game was when he, when he tried to d- deliver the joke of, 
Hey, everybody on social media is saying, let Russ cook. But <laughs> in Minnesota, <laughs> they're saying, let Dalvin cook, cook. <laughs> and it was like, he, he sort of like airmailed the, uh, the, the punchline of that crap gag, you know, by, <laughs> you know, and it, it was this most obvious thing ever. And, and it was delivered poorly. You could have just said, let Dalvin cook. And it would have been better. But, um, you know, I think that was about the 70th time I'd heard that joke by the time the game had started. And thankfully, we didn't hear it again during the game. Yeah, I think more people were impressed that they had the great British Bake Off theme music behind. The that was good. Cooking. Uh, Adam? Well, obviously, we, we do welcome the uh, Gridiron podcast to this segment uh, of the show, as we know that they uh, have managed to lift this entire bit for, for their own podcast, which is quite interesting. Mm. Uh, listen to Will Gavin uh, do his own bin, which I'm sure came about completely organically. Um, but hey, I'm not bitter. Um, <laughs> I mean, that is, that is literally like the third different example of someone. Well, is it a typical Niners fan? Uh, yeah, very much so. We had a, a Niners fan and, and a fairly heralded English Miami Dolphins fan as well on the same thing. And when, when I, I saw a video saying, well, my one for this week is blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting pick yeah. that one. So we have got a listener. Who, who would have thought? Um, my one is, uh, and it's a, probably a little bit far-fetched, but... I follow Aaron Nagler on social media and therefore I follow Cheesehead or I get Cheesehead TV stuff that comes up and the Packers I can the the biggest thing I can say about them is they just remind me very much of Arsenal in the sense that they have this vision of them being like this classy you know you, you are all X but we as an organization are Y and for some reason everything that happens in the world somehow relates to the Green Bay Packers like the Queen will do a royal visit well actually when the Packers went to Wisconsin and they bought their cheese that was actually a similar thing and it's very Arsenal in the sense that it's impossible that you could exist like that because we actually exist like that and it just makes me really really fucking want to beat the Packers in the championship game and every time I see a big play like Jermaine Curse, I think, yeah, if I want to nail someone, like, I don't like the Rams, don't like the Four Turners, but this holier-than-thou nonsense that the Packers have got with their like fan ownership, it really, really starts to grind my gears. And they've got this air of superiority with their admittedly tremendous kits. Um, but they just really start to piss me off in, the, in this idea that you know it, there's 31 teams and the Green Bay Packers. And so I'd really like to do them over again. And that's that. I, I think it's, it's a great point. If you follow any, anybody who, who, who supports the Green Bay Packers, if you follow any of them, they all, they all kind of have this quite smugness about them. Oh. So it'll be stuff like, you'll see a tweet like, Marquez Valdez-Scantling will have his, like, one of his three good games a year. And someone will tweet, <laughs> is, is, is Marquez Valdez-Scantling now a top five receiver? I think he is. I think it's, it's MVS, like Rob. I think MVS. Oh, MVS. Yeah. Apparently good talk. enough to have his own acronym, apparently. Yeah. You know, and it's just, you know, they'll do a tape review and they'll break down the five good plays that Rashawn Gary had and then exclaim that he's going to be the difference maker. It just, there's just a relentless positivity about them, um, which is a bit naff and a bit smug. And um, yeah, and we all know how their season's going to end because even if, they, even if they end up beating the Seahawks again in the playoffs, they'll just get their asses kicked by a better team like they always do in the playoffs <laughs> at some point. And they'll all be very sad about it and, and Rodgers will be a year nearer towards calling it a day. Yeah, and there's a real there's a real thing in their media about that everyone knows they needed a bit of help on offense somewhere in the draft. Everyone knows this, but because the Packers did it, you've got your Nagglers and your Cheesehead lots. Like, well, you obviously don't understand the game quite like we do because we can quite clearly see what the team has done. And you know, they could be like Jerry Rice is coming out of retirement and he's in peak condition at the age of 28. Don't need him, mate. Don't need him. 
got got Lazard. That's, that's all we need. And it is driving me crazy. And they are so on my radar. And I'm so pleased to get this off my chest. It's been much better than I thought. I thought this was going to absolutely bomb. I'm so pleased I got a few nods and smiles out of it because it's really been grinding my gears. Yeah, the, the Alan thing was brilliant because obviously a massive thing was that they drafted uh, AJ Dillon instead of any wide receiver in like the historical yeah. draft class of draft classes. And then Alan Lazard didn't, 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 didn't need him. And then he is whatever he's out for the season with an injury. 12 hours later so that was quite fun but also I don't you clearly seem to be going for like some kind of he, some heavyweights here gridiron and cheeseheads if they have an online presence at crisscrosses with Lars I don't think they do we, um, we, we've we got to boost the traffic so yeah. we have to go down with the shit that's what <laughs> but, we're going to do but, but also the Arsenal comparison it sounds more like Liverpool I just think you just want any reason to throw Arsenal into the into the, into the overgrowth because Rob I once went I once met Adam at a pub he walked into the pub and I was drinking Camden Ale and he took it off me and changed my beer because he didn't want that beer on his table. Is that right? The official well, that, that beer of the filth. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is a real fan there. A uh, my, true fan. Uh, my other one is Zach Taylor because uh, this is some of Football Outsiders, uh, Football Perspective posted. Um, obviously, coaches are a bit uh, weird. But like obviously the Bengals, there seems to be a bit of positive positivity for the first time in years. Obviously Joe Burrow, but Sunday was so bad, and he apparently, according to Football Perspective, became the first ever, the second ever coach since whatever this record began to kick a field goal in the final minute to avoid a shutout. The other one being John Gruden, who's at the Bucks, but he did so with a by running Joe Mixon, who was hobbled on a shin injury for the last two weeks, 13 consecutive plays in a game where they were 24-0 down. I mean, what is he trying to do? And trying to prove by breaking their one of their biggest assets, and not just financially, but actual like jersey sales and team hope assets, Rob? I, th- I think there's nothing more frustrating as a fan when you actually can see a pathway to progression. And, you know, with obviously with Joe Burrow, there is that in Cincinnati, but you're stuck with a coach that you don't really believe in. And you kind of think, you know, if they only just get rid of him and then, you know, a season, what well, this season will end and they probably won't get rid of him given how long they're stuck with Marvin Lewis. And then, and then you sort of think we've got another year of this. And then if next year they end up being like eight and eight, it'll be seen as improvement. They won't. And then it's sort of four or five years down the line and Joe Burrow suddenly turned into Jay Cutler. And, um, you know, and, you, and you're, you're having to go through the whole process again. And, you know, you, you want to sort of combine, you know, your head coach and your quarterback, along with your general manager and your owner, are the sort of the cornerstones of your franchise. And if you, if you feel confident in all of those, and look at the Seahawks, Paul Allen, John Schneider, Pete Carroll, Russell Wilson. You kind of believed in all four. Mm. And therefore, any other sort of issues were kind of like minor issues. Like we can sit here and complain about the pass rush. The, the main aspects of the Seahawks are kind of in place. For the Bengals, they've got a quarterback, they've got a few pieces, but you don't believe in the owner, you don't believe in the GM, you don't believe in the head coach. And, and that must be massively frustrating. Yeah. Adam? No, I, I think that's right. I mean, in, in a similar vein... The New York Jets are about to line up with Joe Flacco and Frank Gore in their backfield. And I mean, <laughs> what? How could you do anything apart from just want to just top yourself in, in that regard and, as, and, as a fan? And Adam Gase is keeping the play calling responsibilities because, and I quote, "He's the best man for the job." Yeah, I've watched well, a lot. I've watched a lot of Jets podcasts and 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 press conferences because it's just hilarious seeing the New York media. <laughs> 
that. If you want to see a you know a proper line of questioning in a press, watch a New York Jets post game. <laughs> why, uh, Adam? Why was that so embarrassing today? <laughs> yeah. Why did you Why did you stupidly go for that field goal at half time when you should have gone for a touchdown instead? And he just has to answer them. And just and they just sh- they don't they don't invite the journalist to ask a question. They just bark the questions out. It's, it, it's a great watch. I think well, I'm, of the, I'm of the controversial view that if the Seahawks don't think Jamal Adams is doing it at the end of this year, yeah, you've got the two first-round draft picks, but don't compound that by giving him a bad contract for the team as well. And in the same way, as soon as Adam Gase came in doing the eyes in that first press conference, he should have been fired on the spot. <laughs> on the spot. Take your lumps. Take, always take your first loss. In business, take your first loss, and that's what they should have done. They would have... I'm not saying not Paige Jamal Adams, whatever he wants, by the way, but if it turned out that, you know, two first round draft picks, you know, is not bad enough, you know, get rid of the guy. On the spot, Adam Gay should have been fired when he started <laughs> doing the eyes because you at that point knew this was never going to work. No, but also Ryan Tannehill, as you pointed out earlier, Rob. Every player. Like, he, 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 every player, yeah. Um, who else? Devante Parker. Jarvis Landry. Yeah. It's just... Yeah, and he got another job. And well, it's, yeah. it's incredible, isn't it? And you, you know, you, the Jets are in this weird situation because isn't their owner sort of? Isn't he like a, a an envoy in in the United Kingdom or has been for the last since Donald Trump became president? Yeah. yeah. So in two weeks' time, he in two weeks' time he could be back in yeah back in New York to clean house. It's <laughs> good to go back in there and sort everything out. If I was Woody Johnson, I was actually and that is the guy, isn't it? I'd actually be thinking, what an opportunity because I can go back in and get rid of this stupid coach. And, and, and maybe get somebody in who's vaguely competent and everyone's going to think I'm a hero. Um, but, you know, I think he left his brother in charge and it, it's, it's a disaster. And, uh, you know, Jets fans are very... I actually went to a Jets game once and, and they are a, a very unique fan base. And uh, watching, I, I just love watching their videos, on their post-game reaction videos on YouTube on a Sunday are very entertaining. Yeah. I also, it also met life. The Giants are in a bit of a state because... Daniel James makes two or three incredibly dumb plays. Doesn't really seem to be much going right. Joe Judge is just cliche after cliche after cliche after cliche after cliche. And then Gettleman is getting way too much power to make weird decisions. And it's like, you can't, I mean, I know the Cardinals did after, with Rosen after one year, but two years of Daniel Jones, one year of Joe Judge, it's, they're in a tough bind as well. Yeah, and do you know the funny thing is about them is... Um... Tony, Tony Pauline mentioned, he tweeted this earlier, that it must be killing Dave Gettleman to see Justin Herbert playing so well because that was the guy he wanted in the draft a couple of years ago. Mm. And I kind of thought, well, why did he draft Daniel Jones? You know, <laughs> if you really wanted Justin Herbert, just wait another year. I mean, oh. you were never going to draft Daniel Jones and then a year later be competing for the NFC Championship game. If you really wanted Justin Herbert, why didn't you just wait a year for him and draft a, you know, a, a cornerstone player in the top 10? You know, they had two first-round picks that year build up your defence, build up your offensive line. Why take a quarterback because you feel like you have to when you could have had Justin Herbert? I think they picked fourth overall this year or fifth. So they would have had Justin Herbert without even having to move. It just doesn't seem like a, an operation that's running very smoothly. And um, they kind of, I think the Giants don't fire like the Jets do. So I think that they will probably stick with Judge and Gettleman, but whether it's the right thing to do remains to be seen. Yeah, it's, I mean, that five minutes kind of makes us kind of grateful for what we have to moan about, I guess, isn't it? Absolutely. I did like the idea that I heard on another podcast that Trevor Lawrence could be New Jersey's quarterback and just play the 16 home games in New Jersey <laughs> next year for the Giants and the Jets. Uh, not go on the road, just plays every game in New Jersey. Yeah, the eight home games for the Giants, eight home games for the Jets. They could share it. 
Uh, and I did quite like the idea. I, mean, I, I like Sam Donald a lot. I, mean, I saw him absolutely shred the Huskies and the one loss they had in, that, in the 2016 season. And he, he just looked different to any other college quarterback I'd seen. So there is a lot of me that hopes that Sam Donald will, you know, prove the Jets wrong and he'll get his trade to, you know, wherever uh, next year and, uh, and, and flourish. But I mean, it's just so dysfunctional, but it's just so funny that it's in New York with all the media there that, I mean, they must just be having a field day. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they're probably going to end up both in the top five, aren't they? Or maybe it's both in the top two. Yeah, I think the Jets look like they're going to, you know, finish it with the top pick and then, um, you know, they'll have a decision to make with regard to, to, to Donald. And, you know, if, if Donald ends up in Pittsburgh or Indianapolis or even in San Francisco, you know, mm. he will end up in a much better situation. I mean, I, I, I really hope he doesn't end up in San Francisco, by the way. But, you know, Indianapolis, I think, you know, if Frank Rye could be a good fit for him or even if he goes to Pittsburgh and sits for a year and then takes over from Ben Roethlisberger, you know, they have that kind of similar gunslinging mentality. Um, do you want a couple of names for draft prospects to sort go of... On. Yeah, go on. Um, so, obviously, bear in mind, that I, you know, I've watched these, these players and I really like them. So there's a, and, and there's a decent chance they might not be there for Seattle when it all comes back. But they're, they're kind of people that no one's talking about. If you get a chance, if there's any Seahawks fans who want to watch some draft, there's a guy called Aleem McNeil who plays defensive tackle for NC State. You may have seen over the weekend, he's, he's 320 pounds. He tipped a ball in the air, the defensive tackle, tipped the ball in the air, then caught the interception, then ran it back 20 yards, <laughs> broke a tackle, right? But I, and, and I was sort of just, I'm not making this up. So my wife comes in and I've said, I found this great guy. I found this guy. He's, he's amazing. I'm going to write about him right now. I'm going to do all this. And as I was sort of explaining this, the highlight popped up. They showed it in the, um, so I was watching the game on my computer and then they showed the highlight of him catching the ball as I was, I was like, that's him. That's it. He's, he's the guy there. He's just caught that interception and run it. And that big fat guy there, he's just run it in. Yeah, it's amazing. So really, really good player. Massively explosive. A great athlete, but 320 pounds. Blows up the interior. Great run defense. Ali McNeil at NC State. Defensive tackle. Patrick Jones is a pass rusher off the edge at Pittsburgh. Had three sacks of the weekend. Getting loads of production. Quick, athletic. The kind of player that the Seahawks love in that sort of Leo edge position. Uh, a guard called Aaron Banks. At Notre Dame, who's kind of switching, he switches with a left tackle there. Um, and, you know, the, he, will, he will play a lot of left tackle, not just in the run game, in the pass game, in the red zone. They mix it up a little bit. He's about 320 pounds again, big, physical, exactly the kind of left guard that the Seahawks like. He's been sort of projected round two, round three. So could easily be sort of like a long term replacement for Mike Yapati if they want to go in that direction. And look, the Damien Lewis pick's looking great. Why not try and repeat that? Mm. And there's a, and one other name for now, Dio Odoyingbo from Vanderbilt is possibly the I best. I hope we don't draft him because I had issues with Noah Igbo Henegi not two yeah. weeks ago. So. <laughs> it's difficult. Yeah, this one's not, not quite Odoyingbo. It's not quite as bad. <laughs> but he's, he's, oh, he's an unbelievable player. 275 pounds, six foot six, flies off the edge with speed, athleticism, great ability in space where you can slip him inside and he ball rushes, he powers his way through blocks, inside out, can play him off the edge. He's exactly what the Seahawks miss right now, a guy who can play early downs off the edge and get after it 1v1 off the edge, kick inside on third down and make you know, disruptive plays. Fantastic talent. I, I do think there's a chance that he might elevate himself into the first round given time, but no one's really talking about him and he's really, really good. If you get a chance to watch Vanderbilt, they're pretty crap, so they'll probably lose, but <laughs> he, he, will, he will stand out. Yeah, I think uh, South Carolina put 50 on him on the weekend, I think. Yeah, uh, it was, but he still had a couple of sacks. Yeah. Uh, t- 
there's two guys at Pittsburgh, aren't there? There's two pass rushes at Pittsburgh. Is, is it Pitt, is Yeah, there's it, another uh, guy on the other side. His name is Rashad something, um, Jones or something like that. I can't remember his name. I've watched him. A few, I've watched three Pittsburgh games, and I'm just I'm not sold for the Seahawks. You know, he's not quite got that explosive ability to sort of play as a five tech or you know the kind of Raheem Green, LJ Collier type role. He's not really got the quickness and suddenness they like off the edges of Leo, and he's not a Leo size. So I, for me, he's he's not necessarily someone I kind of think they would go for. But Patrick Jones definitely is. Watch Patrick Jones. Almost his highlights are on the ACC. Um, YouTube channel. So if you go on there from the weekend, you'll see his three sacks and you'll see what he's all about. But they have, they've got a few guys. I mean, at, at Pittsburgh, they've got the safety Paris Ford who flies around and hammers people and creates interceptions and he's really, really good. They've got a Twyman, Jalen Twy- uh, Twyman, who's, who's not playing this year. He's opted out. He's a defensive tackle, a bit undersized, but great pass rusher. So he's going to go quite early in the draft yeah. as well. Pittsburgh's got quite a talented defense. Yeah. Uh, Bateman opted out as well, didn't he? In Minnesota, he... Bateman has. There's a lot. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's quite funny watching the college games because there's a lot of players that you'd be really excited to see, and then you remember that they're not they're not playing. Yeah. So, you know, your Jamar Chasers, and when the Pac-12 starts again, Penny Sewell's not going to be there. Um, but there's still one or two big names. Rondell Moore's come back. I think um, Sean Wade's playing for Ohio State, the cornerback. I'm, I can't remember what Mika Parsons is Mika Parsons is doing, whether he's playing for Penn State or not. Yeah, Rousseau's not playing for Miami. Uh, hopefully Freyamuth will play for Penn State the tight end um, and OA the defensive end at Penn State so they're just going to hope that it, this the situation we are living through at the minute isn't there in March April time aren't they so they can do what Daryl Taylor can do yeah I mean essentially so I mean I, but they're playing games and they've got fans in the stands I know Florida have kind of shut down their operation haven't they this week because yeah. a lot of players have tested positive but if you were watching college football over the weekend, you'd have barely re- remember that the COVID was a thing because <laughs> stands are packed with fans and, um, you know, they're just kind of getting on with it. So part of me thinks if you get to sort of February time or March, even if they delay the combine, then they're probably going to have these things. And, and fingers crossed by April next year, teams will be able to have guys actually visit the facility and, yeah. and they'll be able to do stuff like that and travel a bit more. I think that given that you can have Snacks Harrison come in for a workout, although how much working out he actually did, you know, given what <laughs> they've been talking about earlier, if you can bring him in and you can bring in other people like the Seahawks and other teams have, then hopefully you can bring 30 draft prospects in by next April. Yeah, and uh, one more thing on draft. Uh, you tabbed Kyle Pitts, I think, last time you were on, and he looks like he's going to go incredibly early because he just looks ridiculous with those gators. He's, he's taken advantage of the situation. I'm surprised... So I'm so I'm I'm not surprise isn't the right word because you don't know how people feel personally about this COVID situation, do you? So mm. if someone says I for my if, if they have a family member who could be in jeopardy if they were to catch it and pass it on, that's totally understandable why you would sit out a season. But I think that if you've sat out because and you have no real reason to, you're missing an opportunity here because Kyle Pitts is really elevated. Like if you did a, if you looked at a mock draft now, I'd bet that Kyle Pitts is in the top fifteen. Whereas going into the season, people were saying sort of late first, second round type guy. He's elevating. Playing that final season is such a big deal. And there's going to be quite a few players who've opted out. You know, your Jamar Chasers and, and Penny Sauls are going to go in the top five anyway. But there are a lot of players who may well have gone very, very early who are going to drop down because out of sight, out of mind, and you've only got two years of tape on them. And they haven't, using your third year, you're physically superior 
Uh, someone like Gregory Rousseau at Miami could last a lot longer than people think because he hasn't played hardly any games. Yeah. Uh, one more thing I never forgot to bring up with the uh, Vikings chat. Uh, you, you, you got a spoiler alert from a former podcast, was it, just before that final drive as well, didn't you? I did. Actually, funny enough, I was going to congratulate him because a uh, friend of the show, Cliff Averill, just won Seahawk Legend of the Year 2020. So we gave him a shout. And I was uh, briefly WhatsApping him during the game and he messaged saying, if they get the ball back, then they'll go and win the game. Just watch or something along those lines. And uh, he was so happy with his prediction that he made me tweet it out and tag him in it. And uh, he, he retweeted it. So you can go, you go and see for yourself that uh, obviously these guys know exactly what they're talking about and they know exactly what these players are like and what's going on. Because I did ask him earlier on in the day if uh, – I've always been interested to know whether fat players who have a rooting interest in a team have any kind of – nerves before a game or silly superstitions or whatever and he basically said that you know when it comes to a team at the Seahawks he knows the scheme he knows what the team's like so he doesn't get nervous per se because he kind of knows what what he's going to see and I think that very much bore true when he you know his, his mate Russell when he was going to get the ball he was going to win so um yeah I'll, I'll any more hot takes that I get from ex-players I'll be sure to uh to spread those around if we can get any spread betting on them again to the last drive and you know, uh, player knows it's going to happen then stick your money where, where his mouth is probably a decent way to go also talking spread betting there over under on Sunday was 53 54 and it was 27-26. So, as our friend Mike Dugas says, never gamble, Adam. Never gamble. Uh, life's, yeah. too short. life's too short to bet the under. Yeah, anything else of note you want to put praise to, Adam, for the week? No, I think that's me. I think I'll give us praise if we manage to make it to midnight and we do a fairly, <laughs> fairly tight show. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, good yeah, stuff uh, all around. Yeah, massively appreciate it as always, Rob, you jumping on. Can, uh, can I just can... say, how good was that that Adam just casually dropped in that he was mm. WhatsApping Cliff Averill at the... Oh, yeah, well, just, you like, know, you don't like to yeah. brag. <laughs> Me and you my buddy like uh, Cliff were just <laughs> chatting about the game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I was uh, trying to get a few tips on, uh, you know, pass rush and whether I could make it as, you know, maybe a tight end of the team off the edge or whatever. But, yeah, no, yeah, the, the, the odd thing, the other thing. I've got, I've got to bring something, you know, Stu does the research. I try and bring a bit of the glamour to the show. So that, that's what I try and do. I have to say, one thing to praise is that you can tell that Rob is a pro's pro because after every comment, yep. you can tell me Premier League uh, you know, press conferences. He's on mute straight away. When he <laughs> Don't worry, we're not that important. You, you can interrupt us. We've got Chris Wilder, but you, you go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, massively appreciate you jumping on as always. Well, I'm sure it'll be like three weeks and we ask you to come on again and make us look a lot smarter than we usually do when you're not on the show. But uh, where can people catch you if they haven't uh, by now and keep up with the draft club because the college season is picking up some steam. I mean, Oklahoma, Texas was awful then, had 100 points somehow on Saturday mm-hmm. night. Yeah, you know, um, really appreciate having us on again. Always love coming on the podcast. And um seahawksdraftblog.com and you know the, although it is a draft blog I, I've written very little about the draft actually over the last three four months it's been wall to wall Seahawks you know it probably the blog probably needs a new name but that would cost me more money so, uh, <laughs> so it's, it's staying Seahawks draft blog but there is a flavour of draft in there flavor, a bit of everything really and there's a good community on there good uh, discussion goes on every single day lots and lots of comments and also if, if it's okay can I plug um the podcast, which doesn't have a name on YouTube that I do with a guy called Robbie Williams. It's not that Robbie Williams. Hmm. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it would be great if he would come on and talk about the Seahawks, but yeah, I think he's probably a little busy. Um, but it, yeah, we do, we do chat about the Seahawks before every game and after every game. So if, if people want to check that out, head over to my YouTube channel, which is just, if you search for Rob State and you'll find it. 
Yeah, also, there's one more thing on a Seahawks fan, Rob. I know someone you know as well. The BBC documentary on Rob Burrow, which is on earlier this week, is just one of the most incredibly poor 30 minutes of TV. Yeah. And it's just, he's, he's an incredible person. I think I tweeted because obviously a few years ago, I read an article by Greg Bishop about Haninsky uh, Hope and Haninsky family, and that pushed us to raise the movement in London. And that is exactly the same conversations we were having. Uh, yesterday, myself and Sean and other people, just because it's just it's incredible to watch, and it's just yeah, oh, it, it really is. And you know, I've known Rob a, a few years because we're in a, a fantasy league um, with a bunch of other journalists and, and sports people. You know, there's a rugby players, footballers in this group, and we're in a fantasy league, and we, we're chatting on WhatsApp. And um, and when we we got the news, it, it was it, it just floored everybody. And then we went to the game where he had a, he had a game in, in Leeds, um, and we all went. And, and met up and, and when you know when he came out at the end of the game and, and it, it was really hard not to just break down into tears because it was just a really emotional day and um, and you know I know that the guys um, watching that the other day it, it was really sort of choked everybody up but I can tell you that Rob Burrow is a fantastic bloke big Seahawks fan so um, we wish him all the best and his family yeah definitely echo all of that as well uh, if you want to get involved with the podcast you can if you want to go and watch that it's up on BBC iPlayer as well and I highly recommend just learn a bit more about the illness and what Rob is going through and everything else but yeah this has been the Pedestrian Podcast Go Ops. Uh, my dog my pops always told me to be a dog um, and to not let anything stop me no matter you know what it is whether it's in the weight room or um, on the field and I'm always going to be a dog on the field whether it's blocking or running routes and you know not letting anybody stop me because you know my dad always told me uh, be your own person because uh, there's only one you and you know from from everybody that I've heard of or anybody uh, that I've been around they always told me how, how big and strong and physical and intimidating I look so why not just act like it so um, you know, he, he created a monster.